in. And we're just here to cause chaos. Duh, backslid. You slow down. I you weren't talking! Because you weren't every time. <laughs> That's what I get for trying to be considerate. I've told you not to be. Fine. All right, so Sam, what is exciting about this episode? Well, this episode is a first for us. We have a special guest. Ooh. Tara, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Okay. <laughs> Hi, my name's Tara Jabari, and I am not in college for quite a while. But we met through Instagram, and I have a similar sort of podcast called Who Was She? About Women Throughout History, and we got in touch. That's and so we're super excited to have Tara on to talk about um, you're gonna have to pronounce this name for me because as we've learned, I can't pronounce sure. anything, but <laughs> yeah. yeah. Lydia Zeminoff. Okay. Lydia Zeminoff. Yes. We got and I'll share her background and her family's background, but her father basically invented the language Esperanto. Did you guys know about this language? I had never yeah. heard about it until you sent us. But okay. Yeah. It's and like the completely like most logical language but no one wanted to learn a new language. So it, <laughs> so it kind of grew after World War One, or well, around that time. And I can talk a little bit about that. It's sort of, there used to be a United States Association of Esperanto, I think. And when I was working on this podcast during lockdown in 2020, I could, you know, no one was in the <laughs> office. So it was a little hard, but it's on Duolingo. I learned a little bit of it. And it's, it's a collection of mostly European languages because Ludwig Zeminoff was from Europe and was just trying to make it really simple. And it became really popular amongst like Japan. They learned because Japanese hmm. and like English are very, very different from each other. And English comes mostly from Latin and Germanic. So it's very European. So it really helped like, getting that easier for them to be able to understand each other. But yeah, it's sort of, I, I think the last numbers I heard was like 2 million people around the world kind of speak Esperanto on a regular mm -hmm. basis. It used to be a lot more and hopefully it doesn't actually die off. But yeah, and, and Lydia traveled through three continents between two world wars to teach the language because she also believed like her father that if you speak the same language, if you can have this common language, then we can start having peace around the world. A lot of the differences about humankind can dissipate. You can start understanding each other. Communication right? is key. Communication is key. Yeah. Yeah. Ellen's much more of a language person than I am. She like actually speaks more than one, but I am I'm always jealous of people who can do that. <laughs> I am technically fluent in Spanish, and by technically, I mean I watch Spanish telenovelas, and I'm scared of actually speaking to people. You watch Grand Hotel. I've heard of, wait, I've actually seen a few episodes of that one. I love, I call it Downton Abbey on, like, yeah. crack. It's so good. You need to watch uh, Cable Girls. I, oh, yeah. Oh, classic. I watched that. I've been neglecting Velvet, but... I will get to it. Yeah. yeah. I'm also working on Elite. 
Okay, that's the school one, right? Yeah, it's like if Riverdale were in Spanish. Yeah, <laughs> and then high seas or alto mar is another one I really like. Yeah, no, no, no. I've no. seen Jane the Virgin. Jane the Virgin <laughs> counts too. Yeah, that counts. Um, with that twist of who the narrator is, no spoilers in case. <laughs> but yeah, that's a good one. I like that the grandmother always spoke in Spanish. I was like, oh, awesome! Now I can work on it. <laughs> yeah so i mean my family comes from iran so that was my first language even though i was born and raised in america my mom didn't want me to lose her the mother tongue so i speak that and then between my parents they spoke seven languages wow wow yeah i mean pretty fluently um I think they are mostly like experts in really three languages but they could get around like they knew french English and Persian, but you had to learn Arabic because Iran is in the Middle East and everything else speaks Arabic there. So they had to learn it. Um, and then German a little bit, a little bit of Spanish. And I think that's, maybe that's it. Anyway, but I always liked languages. It doesn't come as naturally to me, but how I learned about Lydia is through the story of how because, spoiler alert, she did die during World War II. Man. Of the, yeah, but of how they got her, uh, like how they tried to rescue her. And that was really fascinating because I hadn't, I hadn't heard of it that way. And I was like, this is what movies are made out of. And I realized there was a book about her life. And um, after a series of attempts of trying to make a film of her life, it wasn't really going anywhere. I mean, are both of you in Los Angeles? I know one of you. No, is. just me. Just you. Okay. So you, 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 I don't know if you're in the film industry, but you, I'm sure you hear it. It's like, you <laughs> get anything made. So I decided to try it as a podcast because I've been working with podcasters for a few years now. And so, yeah, I made it into a podcast and now I'm going to work on a couple of other seasons my concentration though to keep me sane was to work on women throughout baha'i history so baha'i faith is a religion that happened in uh, 19th century iran or persia so it's a less than 200 years old so it gave me a window but a lot of really cool people um with a really interesting histories and my family come from are all Baha'is basically. So that's how I got in touch with that. But Hazel Scott is someone I found out about. She is the she was born in Trinidad and was raised in Harlem, New York. And she went to Juilliard at eight years old in the 50s or 40s, which was just like really rare for any person of color to be able to go, but she was such a talent in piano that they were like, we got it, she's a genius. So she's a classical and jazz pianist and then eventually became the first black American to have her own television show. And often a lot of people think it's this, a male who became the first person to have his own show, but it's really- Of this course. Thing. Right. And Typical. so I've, and her husband, she married Adam Clayton Jr. who was a huge civil rights activist. and. And she became a Baha'i later in her life, but I didn't really know much about her. And my mother's a classical pianist. So <laughs> I have that. So I'm been reading her book and I'm going to try and translate that into a series, like the another season. For her oh, that'll be cool. Ooh, sneak peek. 
But yeah. Wait, here we are here for Lydia. Yes. <laughs> Tell okay, us about so her. Okay. So I got it all down. I took some parts from my podcast and I shortened it, but I, there's like lots of cool, fun facts that I had to leave out because that's a lot, right? Yeah, that's fair. You had a whole season. We have like 45 minutes. Yeah, you go so much more in depth than we do. (laughs) So basically, well, first the book that I really base the podcast off of is called Lydia by Wendy Heller. You can still find it mostly online because it was published in the 80s and they gave me their blessing to use it. And I always try and give them credit. Right. Mm-hmm. But basically to, to know about Lydia, you have to know she was basically a daddy's girl. Um, so you need to learn more about her father. So her father was Ludwig Zemanoff, and he was born in 1859 in and grew up in Lithuania at that time. Uh, Lithuania and his little small town was really a crossroads for different backgrounds, Russian, Polish, Jewish, German, all of these people sort of lived together. And because they, they sort of didn't trust each other though, right? They were like, you don't speak my language in there. And, and he saw a lot of mistrust and confusion. So he believed that if and and also because he is of jewish background he learned old testament so he knew about the tower of babel and all sorts of stuff so he's like okay i want to make everyone i want it to be possible for everyone to speak the same language right i get it esperanto can be used to kill god (laughs) finally (laughs) not kill god (laughs) because he was actually quite religious and he does I don't know where you got that from. Is that not uh, the point of the tower? <laughs> no, the tower tower oh. of Babel wasn't to kill God, Ellen. It was just to like show him up. Oh, yeah, they weren't. No one is down with murder these days, or those days, Ellen. Just you. Oh, <laughs> well, they were mur- murdering each other. <laughs> yeah, fine. That's your next okay. It's gonna be about murders. I I feel. <laughs> not this hyperfixation. Okay. Well, so okay, went, sorry. Esperanto, please continue. <laughs> well, it was mostly because people weren't like, Egeman Alan Harf Bezanam Botun Beforsi, Mutunin Manchimigam. No, you have no idea what I just said. I just said, if no. I was speaking in Persian, would you understand what I'm saying? So it. <coughs> You'll just go with silence. And in this this time or often, people will be like, I don't know what you just said, but I'm going to ignore it or I'm going to keep my kids away from you because I don't know what you're saying. So his thought, okay, if we pick one of the existing languages, that's saying that we approve of one language over the other. And that's, again, it goes against this idea of unity and, and helping each other. So he said, let me start my own language. And he started creating Esperanto, right? By 1887, he had moved to Poland and married Clara Zilbernik, right? So Clara, who will become Lydia's mother, and Clara and her family really supported Ludwig. And part of her dowry was made to write their first Esperanto book. And well, what supportive parents, think They were really supportive in-laws and stuff. His family, not so much. His parents, <laughs> not so much. But you know, you'll have to listen to my podcast to learn more about that. 
but so the book was a success and even Count Leo Tolstoy of Anna Karenina oh. had learned about Esperanto and got the copy of the first book and reported that he learned the language in less in like no more than two hours. He just loved it. Like how simple. Well, that's just showing off. Yeah, Tolstoy would. <laughs> exactly. I was gonna say, I, I, I do like Tolstoy, but he was a bit of a, an ego guy. Yeah. Um, so during this time, like during their marriage, they had three children. Adam in 1888 and Sophia in 1889. And then in 19, January 29th, 1904, Lydia was born. So that's an age gap. There's an age gap. Her parents <laughs> were in the 40s when they had her. her. Her siblings started going into school. Her father became an ophthalmologist and actually Adam became an ophthalmologist. And Sophia went to medical school as well. Clara, for the most part, was a homemaker and very supportive of Esperanto movement, of her husband and of her children. And Lydia got to sort of be homeschooled. And she was, because her parents were older, they kind of stayed at home more. She was homeschooled, things like that. So she became very close, particularly with her father. So when he died on April 14th, 1917, he, his health was declining and he died peacefully at home. But she was young, she was only a teenager. And that was hard. By 1918, World War I had ended and Poland became an independent nation for the first time in over 100 years. So now you had this nation who was independent but totally broke and had no idea what to do with itself. And remember, they're of Jewish background. So anti-Semitism really came about. And over 130 towns and villages throughout Poland had violence against Jews and they had a huge clashing with the Red Army and it was very hard for her to grow up. Her, there's like wars where her sister Sophia is in medical school and she is sent to Russia for medical school, but then she's a nurse oh, no. for the Army. Why would that be any better? It doesn't, but that was, <laughs> and, and because they grew up with these parents who believed in like, hey, we need to work together, not fight each other. That they oh, it's not the mindset at that time. Not at the mindset. So it was really hard for them. Um, also, but, a bit off topic, but like Poland spends all this time trying to get its own state because they've been discriminated against. And then when they do, they're like, we need a new target. I mean, oh. they're the breadbasket of Europe. It like They were like the most conquered nation in the world for like <laughs> ever. <laughs> Really, I mean, when I was learning the history, I was like, oh my goodness, how much of this should I share? But it is hard. Yeah. Also, yeah. were they, was the family speaking Esperanto at home? They were. And actually, there's a funny story where Lydia was, you know, kind of stubborn and she refused to learn Esperanto or like speak Esperanto <laughs> at home. And they were like, this is embarrassing. <laughs> but, um, Eventually, she like came to it. It was like her little, uh, you know, rebellious like teen years. Like, yeah, rebellion. She's like, I'm not going to speak this language versus like drinking and smoking and stuff. She was like, I'm not speaking the language you invented. But she eventually did. And she became the big, I mean, I think Esperanto got well known. A huge part of it is because of her and her influence and who she met and how she taught. I think one of the big things about Lydia that also was important is that she was a teacher. And teachers don't get a lot of credit for what they can accomplish for no, generations. Right? Not enough. 
So yeah, so she, they, they were a whole Esperanto writing, writing. Um, the big thing that Lydia continued to do, Clara and Ludwig really did, was to translate a lot of writings from Russian and Polish and um, Hebrew into uh, Esperanto. Old Testament works of Shakespeare, all sorts of stuff. So they do have that in Esperanto. Wow. So Hamlet would be in both Shakespeare and Klingon. Wait, no, in Esperanto and Klingon. (laughs) Those two. Yeah, exactly. I lost there for a second, (laughs) Alan. Yeah, I was going to get there. Okay. I'll edit this. (laughs) Yeah. So basically, by 1924, the League of Nations and the Universal Telegraph Union unanimously recognized Esperanto as a clear language for telegraphy or clerilingual. That's really cool, actually. Yeah. Yeah, so it went really far. And in 1924 is also when Clara Zemanoff passed away. Uh, she had cancer. And then the Esperantists were like, okay, so naturally Adam's going to be the leader, the Esperanto leader from the Zemanoff family. But he was busy. He got married. He had children. He had his own practice. And it turns out it was going to be Lydia and she was only 20 years old, but she took the reins and was like, no, no, I'm going to do everything for Esperanto movement. All right. Good for her. Yeah. I liked it. And one of the things that I also really liked about her and a lot of the women in her family is because it was pretty unusual. It's unusual for this time, but particularly during that time, she or Sophia and several of their female cousins never married or had children. It was Interesting. just that good you, for them. Right. So one of the things that in the Zemanoff household was they're like, your, your service to humanity is not to raise the next generation and to get married and cook and all clean and stuff. It can be, but really what do some sort of work that continues to serve as many people as possible, right? Very so, progressive. I dig mm. it. Sophia became a doctor and Lydia became a teacher. And they also kept traveling, particularly Lydia. She will go to Palestine, present day Israel. She'd go to Malta. I think she went to Libya. I can't remember. And then she ended up going to all over Europe and America to teach Esperanto. And one thing is that's really sweet is she was very, she was only five feet tall. And they said she was very simple, but she had very thoughtful blue eyes. And when she was going on stage or like in front of the classroom, a lot of her students were like, it was like a lion. She was so focused and she was so clear. We all were drawn to her as a teacher. And then when she got off, she was very quiet and shy and introverted. So it was really <laughs> interesting. It's like seeing a performer and you're like, oh my gosh. And then if you meet them, they're like, hi. <laughs> kind of, it, it was interesting. And I liked that about her as well. So she really started moving. She taught first a lot uh, throughout Sweden and then France were the two first countries that she left home at like, 28 years old to just go and travel full-time to be a teacher. And she didn't make a lot of money. A lot of Esperantists had her live with them. And that's how she kind of saved money and stuff. But also there was another Esperantist, an American journalist named Martha Root, who was also a Baha'i. 
Now, do you guys know what the Baha'i faith is? Not the details. Okay. Yeah. So really quickly, it, it started around 1844, where there's new religion. It's an independent religion that comes after Islam. And the main beliefs is it is monotheistic. So we believe in one God. And that because we were created by this all-knowing, all-being named God, who has no gender and stuff, all the prophets, all these messengers are also coming from the same source. So we believe in all the prophets as well before him. But it's ever progressive, right? So we use like the golden rule, like Jesus said, be kind to your neighbor, because that's all you knew. Muhammad came and said, be kind to your countrymen, because then like, hey, look, there's a whole other section in this area. <laughs> the founder of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah, was like behind be kind to the whole world because by 1844 uh, there was the, a whole world we we knew okay not only is the world not flat but it's there's this whole other thing you know there's a thing called australia and sweden <laughs> and all that stuff so but then we'll still have these differences and they're like no, no no we're still created by something that is this like there's something else we have so much in common and by now we have science that showed like hey, just because you have darker skin and I have lighter skin and you have green eyes and I have blue eyes and brown eyes doesn't mean one is superior than the other. We all have to have the same amount of like heart, livers, kidney. Yeah. Yeah. So it doesn't matter. So that was what is a huge part of it. And the other thing that there's a principle that we try and strive for is an, a universal auxiliary language so that everyone has their mother tongue and then this same language, again, so that we can communicate the best way. And that will end a lot of wars and feuds and stuff. That right? would be really cool. That's the, that's the hope we have. <laughs> so a lot of Baha'is were encouraged when Esperanto really became more public to learn Esperanto. Ludwig Zemanov learned about the Baha'i faith. He's like, that's cool. He kind of became agnostic because of so much anti-Semitism. And Lydia, because she went through so much hardship, like growing up during World War I, seeing her parents suffer and die and, and never feeling quite welcomed anywhere. She And it's all because you were Jewish, you were of this faith. She's like, then I'm atheist, because why would this ever matter? Why would it? make it, why do we have religion if it's only going to bring us pain? But Martha Root, she grew up in the United States and she traveled through Japan, uh, all over Africa and agreed that the language was a huge thing. And she learned Esperanto because she was traveling all over the world and Esperanto was really useful. And she met Lydia. She actually was saying, she, she wrote for so every year there's an Esperanto Congress, a Universal Esperanto Congress. And Martha Root wrote to them in 1925, she really wanted to have something to talk about the similarities between the Baha'i Faith's auxiliary language goal and Esperanto movement. Um, she wrote for them, our aim is the same as yours. The Baha'i movement is the Esperanto of religions basically. And so they're like, yeah, sure. Why not do it? And uh, Lydia like was like, all right, I'll check this guy out. Um, and didn't really think much of it. But at the same time, a few months later, they had a huge unveiling of 
a monument in honor of Dr. Zemanoff in Warsaw. So Martha Root again asked the family, may I come and speak a few words about your father, about his appreciation of the Baha'i faith and where I'm coming from, because I really appreciate this language that helped me with my travels. And they said, sure, you can come to the opening and say some words. And they hosted Martha for about three weeks. And Lydia and Martha that just hit it off. They became the best of friends. Aww. Martha taught her English and Lydia taught Martha Esperanto. <laughs> and they and they became so close. And Lydia started to realize like what if if religion has its place, like what does it mean for myself? How can it bring unity, not not destruction or or hate amongst people? and eventually became a Baha'i that they actually called each other lovingly spiritual mother and daughter. Oh, that's really cute. Wow. Yeah, so they were, and, and Martha herself also never married and had biological children, but she was very close with a lot of people. Okay, so they bonded. <laughs> and also with her encouragement, she went to pilgrimage which was in Akka and Haifa, where the prophet founders are buried. And that's a whole long story. But she went there and she had a lot of really inspirational moments. And it drove her to be like, okay, now I want even more to teach this language because I can see the potential to unite people. I just see how much Martha embraces me. And then I got to know the Baha'is and they really appreciate this drive. And my father's whole goal was to unite people she had so much more vigor so she she just started to learn like how can i best teach esperanto and then she found out about the se method and that was invented by romanian priest andre se who became an esperantist and his method was kind of the technique utilizes blackboards and paper for the first few classes and you speak in esperanto about everyday subjects and then Gradually, the class teaches grammar and broader vocabulary. After 40 hours of this kind of method, students are expected to have a basic ability to communicate in Esperanto, right? So mm -hmm. she learned this, she mastered it. It takes a lot out of the teacher, but she really liked this and used that. And she continued to go back to France and, and travel even more and teach more Esperanto. And because she was such a good teacher, I mean, well before the 40 hours, people were fluent with her in Esperanto. So she was happy to have this new drive and ambition and passion, but also this new method. And then she was invited by the Baha'is of United States to come and teach Esperanto in the US. So that's when she was starting to head out to America. At the same time though, World War II was happening. And um, oh, what a good oh, the other one, the other one was happening. And unfortunately, the German Esperantists tried to accommodate the new regime. The no, they were like, if we hate to see it, disown the Zemanov name, we're no longer associated with this Jewish name, they'll leave us alone. Obviously, that was not going to be the case. They were not yeah. trying to accommodate yeah. rulers. And that was really tough. A quote she wrote before she left for the United States, the Congress for the Union of Esperantist Women. 
she spoke about the importance of women's roles to bring about world peace, basically. So I'll, I'll share this quote. Let us untie to bring peace to the war tortured world. We women can do that better than men. What have we done? What have they men done in that respect? <laughs> Armament conferences, which are only futile chatter as long as souls lack the feeling for peace. To inspire that peaceful sentiment is the role of, this, of the woman. It is she who educates, she who first forms the mentality of future state leaders. You who are mothers, never put toy soldiers in the hands of your child. Teach them that blood must not be shed, that violence is ignoble. Teach them to love not only the nearest neighbor, but also the neighbor across the border, end quote. She also talks about if you're a secretary or something like you can also have influence with the men who are in charge by doing the same thing, like teaching them with with love and compassion that, hey, we can't go in bitter and angry. And so she was like, this is the role of women. And we really do have a place in this world. But then she started heading to the United States and Europe was not getting any better. So no. yeah, we'll get to that too. Okay. So I have some questions about like her philosophy on women's place in the world. Okay. Are you thinking that like this would be like a temporary and that eventually women would be in these positions of power? Or was she thinking that like this was going to take longer than that? I mean how I took from it, from her writings, her journals, and her talks from the book, and a little bit of other research, it was sort of, this isn't going to be like, women can be just in higher positions right away, mm -hmm. right, anytime soon. But they could be, it's not that we're the lesser sex by any means. Just as how much, you know, people were like, do you think Esperanto is going to prevent World War II? She's like, no, a language is not going to prevent World War II. That's a whole other issue. But I do think that this is a tool that can be used to stop not just wars, but miscommunication that leads to things as serious as a war. So I think she was saying, until the day comes where people will recognize, the, the collective recognize that women are just equal to men in status, particularly under the eyes of an all-knowing, all-creator God, it's going to take some time. The big thing, though, right now are that they are considered the first, you know, they're considered to stay at home, raise the children. Mm -hmm. If you're raising the children, you're also going to be influencing the future generations. That's why she's like, don't, don't give them toy guns. <laughs> That's the beginning of it. Um, you know, if you're a secretary, don't just be taking notes. If you have something that you're like, actually, that doesn't seem very smart. Like, don't be afraid to say something because you will regret not saying it. You could have prevented something bad from happening if you just spoke up. I mean, and I think that's where her mind was coming mm -hmm. from. Again, remember, her family was quite progressive that mm -hmm. a lot of women in general in the Zeminoff family didn't get married and have kids, they became doctors, right? Or that her mother and father raised the children together, but she understood that that was rare. Mm -hmm. so. 
Well, even today, you can see like remnants of that, like when women are more educated, their children are more educated and the correlation is much stronger between mothers and their children versus fathers and their children. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting that they talk about the sociology of it. And, you know, we're going to get into things that what if it's the same sex couple who are raising the children and stuff. But from what I noticed is this weird bond, particularly with biological children, with their mothers. So my friend, she's of Russian and Latvian descent. So she speaks Russian in the house and her or her family speak it. And then our husband's Mexican, so they speak Spanish. They don't speak each other's languages, but they both agreed when they had children that they would speak to the children in their mother tongue. And the grandparents do the same too and stuff. So their their two children speak three languages fluently by the age Damn. of like wow. Um, they're now like eight and four years old. But what was interesting is even though she's a nurse and her husband is sort of has his own kind of carpentry business. So he was able to stay at home a lot. But what was interesting is I was noticing that their Russian was a lot stronger than their Spanish. <laughs> and I was like, that's that's fascinating to me, right? And my mom's like, yeah, that doesn't surprise me because the mother's bond, I mean, just usually is a lot stronger. And it, in, so when Lydia is talking about this, that kind of resonated with me too. I'm not saying it's an exact science, yeah. But it does show that there is something that women also need a lot. I mean, Melinda Gates French now, uh, she has a really cool book where for decades she researched. And if a female is educated, not only with her family and her children, but the village will prosper a lot better than if she was not educated. Wow. And oh how- yeah, my mom was reading that book. She like talked yeah. about it all the time. <laughs> or like the importance of birth control. It's not to keep you pure and, and chaste. No, 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 no. Because how are you going to stop, unfortunately, with that mentality, on, like if rapes happen, assaults happen. No, no, no. Or even if you are in a happy marriage, if a woman keeps getting pregnant one after the other, it's not healthy for her nor for the babies. So, you know, like she was saying, so birth control is actually very, very important and a huge reason of why people can progress. We still need to do that Margaret Sanger episode. We're getting there. But she's so racist. Was Margaret Sanger? She was like a pioneer of American birth control movement, but also partially because she was a eugenicist and she wanted to like lesser people to have birth control as a whole thing. Oh, complicated figure. Yeah, she was like one of the pioneers of Planned Parenthood, but also eugenicist. Okay. See, and I think that's important to kind of talk about because not everyone is a total bad guy or a good guy. They come yeah. from, you're like, so for instance, like Ludwig was sort of, I don't know, I, I can understand. You didn't understand what I'm saying. And I'm just asking you a nice question. Like, how was your day? But the Germans and the Russians were like, get away from us, you know, kind of thing. And he's like, well, then how can we do better? Because we all are, we have a survival mode in, instinct, I think. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Oh, I'd be, I'll, I'll keep an eye out for that episode. That's yeah, it's definitely coming. Mm-hmm. 
Or like, I, I couldn't really finish the show, but Miss America, the Hulu show. Yeah. Another thing my mom watched and I have not. <laughs> yeah, it's just interesting because it's like a big uh, Republican conservative woman was like the place for a woman is at the home, but then she became a bigger name than her husband. And then she had this little thing. And then of course you had the other side. I forgot her name. She was the first African-American woman to have run for president as well as Gloria Steinem was involved too. Oh, I don't know that name either. Now I'm curious. And that was a really interesting, I mean, we're going off in a tangent. We're gonna have to actually watch <laughs> Miss America and then just do an episode about each character. Yeah. I know, we're gonna, we'll get around to it. And the woman who played Crazy Eyes from Orange is the New Black and she's the new therapist and in treatment, she plays this president candidate. And I was actually, cause I'm in New York City right now in case you can't hear the damn train. <laughs> but I was at the Chelsea, or sorry, the Whitney Museum and I was with my friend who's African-American and she and I were looking at this quote from this president candidate. And she said, I think it was harder for me to be black than to be a woman. So I asked my friend, I was like, do you think that's true? And she's like, huh, I, I would disagree. But then again, she's saying this in the 60s or 70s and things have changed. Like there's more diversity and inclusivity so it's actually harder to be a woman than to be just black. Well, we have a black, we had a black president, still don't have a female one. So that was her argument. <coughs> and this woman was running for president and she was black and she was female. So she was, was it she, Shirley Chisholm? Yes. Chisholm? Yeah, I think that would be a really interesting episode. And so we had a really long, great conversation about that because I wouldn't know what that's like. People can't see me. This is a podcast, but <laughs> Ronian descent, um, the original Aryans, if you will. But yeah, Middle Eastern. Okay, shall I carry on with Lydia? Yes. Oh yeah, let's actually focus. <laughs> oh, you mean not go on a ten-minute tangent? But I feel like we got lots of new episodes for you. <laughs> Um, that seems as well. That's what always happens. We only ever plan episodes when we're in the middle of an episode. <laughs> so yeah, Lydia went and arrived in New York on September 29th, 1937. And I thought this was a really cute quote she wrote. She was mesmerized by, all, I mean, it's New York City. It's the skyscrapers, the traffic, the huge crowds. She goes, my legs were still wobbled from being on the ship. And I still felt the role of the ship, but there wasn't time to think about it. In America, one doesn't waste time. So we were like, okay, we gotta go, we gotta go. And people, you know, were talking about how they were so amazed by her. A lot of people wrote she had a delightful French accent when she spoke English. And one of her students said, Lydia has a peculiar quality that I have never run across before. Great simplicity and expression combined with a profound grasp of spiritual reality. So yeah, so she was, she traveled, eventually she went from New York City to Philadelphia, Baltimore, Washington, DC. She started going to the Midwest, Michigan, Illinois, Ohio. At this time, they were building the Baha'i House of Worship in Wilmette, Illinois, about 30 minutes away from downtown Chicago. And it to, to date, it is still the only Baha'i house of worship in North America, but she got to see a bit of the construction. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, so, but 
1937, 1938. You know, she was there for overall 14 months. And I feel like she should have just stayed. Yeah. Here's where sort of two of the things that really introduced me to who Lydia is. So they tried to keep her. They're like, this is this is kind of dangerous. So American Baha'is were trying to figure out a way for her to stay in the United States. And they turned out because of a series of oversights between the communication with the embassies in France and in the United States, the organizers, they kind of screwed up which visa she needed. She had taken a little bit of payment and because she took even a penny, the visa that she went on, she technically broke the law, but no one oh, had no. to them. And they're like, she got to leave and kind of thing. So then they tried to go to Canada and Canada wouldn't take her. And, and so she was, eventually she had to go back uh, to Poland. And that was the oh, other- Oh no. They were like, you'd have to go back to Poland specifically. And they're like, well, that can't be, that's like the worst place for her to go. And because remember she is of Jewish descent. Judaism is not just a religion, it is sort of like an ethnicity that, and she she is like, I am Jewish, but I'm, my religion is Baha'i. Baha'i was also becoming illegal in Germany, that's a whole thing. So she's <laughs> totally screwed up, screwed uh, with- Oh yeah, uh, Jews in Poland is like half, in that time period is like where half of my Hebrew school class growing up came from, so, yeah, so not was, a good spot. <laughs> yeah, so she wrote, when her application for a visa in Canada was denied, and the U.S. has said, sorry, we can't keep you. She wrote, it is a real disappointment for me, very painful, but we must accept sincere, serenely what comes and trust that God guides us on the way that is most right for us. So she left in November 29, 1938, after 14 months. Oh, that's such um, bad timing. Oh, no. Really bad. And this really broke my heart. The same month that she left, President Roosevelt announced that European refugees already in the United States on a visitor's visa would not be forced to return to their country. Oh, no. Oh, my God. That's such bad timing. Overall, 20,000 people were able to take advantage of this immigration policy, but Lydia was not one of them. Oh, Lydia. Oh. And she could have. She was so close, but it didn't work out. So on December 9th, 1938, she arrived back in Poland. Oh. Uh, she wrote, this was really sweet. She said, the highest skyscraper in Warsaw, which the city is so proud of because it is 17 stories, cannot impress me anymore. <laughs> and now by fall of 1939, the Third Reich had invaded Poland and that began the Second World War. And after three weeks of trying to fight them off, Warsaw in particular was conquered. And all the Jews were distinguished from the rest of the population by wearing a Star of David on their sleeve and having to be in the, uh, the ghettos, as they call it, in a particular quarter of Warsaw. Yeah, and Warsaw Ghetto was one of the like most famous, like worst off ones. Yeah. It's where a lot of the like artifacts and stuff from that time period comes from the Holocaust museums. It's not a good spot. And no. what did she teach? She taught Esperanto and because she had spent so much time in America and knew Martha Root, a lot of the Jews and other people in Warsaw were like, could you actually teach us English? Which was illegal under the Third Reich. 
So, but she still taught it. She taught Esperanto and English to the kids and the neighbors and stuff privately. She continued. What a badass. She's like, well, I mean, once you're already in the Jewish ghetto. Like, what are you going to do? I mean, not too much else to lose. Yeah. I mean, you could, I mean, I don't know if I'd be brave enough to be like breaking more laws. Well, yeah. You'll see just how much she thought of others because there were a couple of instances where people were like, I can help you. But yeah, uh, we'll get there. So basically, she kept busy by continuing to translate writings into Esperanto, Baha'i writings, other forms of literature into Esperanto, and teaching privately Esperanto and English to her neighbors. But it's very scarce to learn what was going on. A lot of people were worried. Her her Esperantists and Baha'i friends from France and Sweden and the United States were like, what's going on? They tried to figure out a way to save her. It was all, there was nothing they could do. And there was very, very little information. All of the letters that they would send would be sent back to them with no forwarding address because they no longer lived in that address. They were in a particular area of Warsaw and no one knew where. Um, by March 1940, Stefan Zemanoff, Lydia's cousin, who actually was in New York when the war broke out and was able to stay in the United States, would learn through some cousins in Russia that unfortunately the whole family had been arrested in Warsaw. Oh, no. um, Adam was the first to be arrested at the Jewish hospital where he was the director. Eventually, oh, God. He was shot and killed with hundreds of others, Jewish professionals and intellectuals. Her sister, actually her sister-in-law was also arrested, but her sister-in-law and her nephew was a were able to escape, which you'll have to listen to my podcast to learn more about. <laughs> but Sophia and Lydia were arrested, sent to prison. Then eventually they were kind of taken out of prison, going back to the ghettos. At this time, here's a couple of instances where they tried to save her life. An Esperantist, Joseph Arsenic, Arsenic, kind of like the poison. Oh, that one. Um, <laughs> who also was, he learned Esperanto and actually bonded with Lydia because she was teaching him about the Baha'i faith. He said before the ghetto was sealed off from that, he offered to hide Lydia in his home on the outskirts of Warsaw. But he wrote, quote, that noble woman refused my offer to save her saying that I, with my family, can lose our lives because whoever hides a Jew perishes along with the Jew who is discovered. He also wrote that Lydia's last words to him were, quote, do not think of putting yourself in danger. I know that I must die, but I feel it my duty to stay with my people. God grant that out of our sufferings, a better world may emerge. I believe in God. I am a Baha'i and will die a Baha'i. Everything is in his hands. End quote. So for wow. a woman who was an atheist because she saw so much hatred because of who her family were and then just because they were Jewish, to being someone who had so much faith that everything is going to happen for a reason and out of all of this destruction, something better can happen. But I will not let other people risk their lives. I just can't let you guys do that. I'm always really amazed by those stories of like people in the Holocaust who are like, this was God's will and it all has a reason and like there's a purpose because like that's just a lot of faith, more faith than I can like imagine. And I guess you, you really can't until you're put into that position. You might surprise yourself. And I hope 
you never are put into that position because we would want to be. <laughs> we'll see how climate change yeah. goes. Well, climate change now. So now here is the main one that I, I heard of this first. And it's by a German Baha'i named Fritz Vanko. So he was in Germany. And at that time, when you were a young man, man in Germany, you had to serve in the army, which was the Nazi party. And all the Baha'is, a lot of people, but particularly the Baha'is, and Baha'i faith was actually illegal in Germany. They said, well, we have to follow the law of our government, but if our government is so innately against what we want, what we believe in, what should we do? And so they asked for guidance by, we don't have, Baha'i faith doesn't have a clergy, but we did at this time have what we called the guardian of the Baha'i faith named Shoghi Effendi. And it's a long story, but he's not a clergy member, but people went to him for some guidance and, and a couple of other people. Consultation is a huge part of, of the Baha'i faith. And they were saying like, what, what do we do? Like we're being forced to go and work in this, in the military, which is the Nazi party. We're going to have to go kill a bunch of Jews or take them to this thing called concentration camp. And let me tell you, it's not a good thing kind of thing. And the guardian reportedly replied that if their desire to not take a life was sincere, God would assist them in attaining it. So they would never take a life. In the first week of the war, with the exception of 24-year-old Fritz, his brother and all his friends died before they ever had to take, to shoot a gun, basically. So in a way, they actually never killed anyone. I don't know if that's better. Yeah. What happened to Fritz? So he became an ambulance driver for the German army, and he started working for the resistance. So they'd be like, so he's like, maybe this is why I was spared. I'm not... In the, I'm not firing a gun. And then they would send him and be like, go get this Jew from us and all that and stuff. And then he'd go and find the Jew and he's like, get the hell out of here, man. They're looking for you. <laughs> and he's like, oh, oh boy. And like, he died. <laughs> yeah, something. I'm like, I think he went to, you know, France and all that stuff. So he actually was like, maybe that's why I was spared. And eventually the guardian's like, if you can, go save Lydia. So he found Lydia and again, she refused because he's like, I only have the resources to help get you out. And she's like, I can't leave everyone. I can't leave my family. I can't leave the Jewish people. I'm going to be with them. And I know I'm going to have to die with them. That's so noble. Yeah. And I wish I had a little stupid. Yeah. I wish I had a better analogy than I just keep thinking of John McCain refusing to leave the POW camp. I think that's a good analogy, honestly. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's oh, it's hard for people to understand when my mom's like, she should have left. And, they're like, <laughs> and eventually, I mean, Fritz was able to save hundreds of people's lives, Jews, Baha'is, even his mother's life. He got them smuggled out. Eventually, he was killed during uh, in 1944, so right before the war ended. But I found that really interesting that these young people i mean lydia was in her 40s early 40s when she died but yeah so i found that was that was what caught like i learned about fritz mako and lydia and that's how this and this was about six or seven years ago so now we're finding out what happened so by 19 
1942, in, in July 1942, there was an order that all the Jews of the Warsaw Ghetto to be deported to the East, which is a concentration camp, a camp called Treblinka. I don't know if you guys learned about Treblinka. I've actually been to Treblinka. How? Uh, yeah. So you probably were where her ashes are. Yeah, it, it's uh, concentration camps are a time. Whenever I'm close to one, I like feel the need to go for like cultural sake, but I never enjoy it. It's a very heavy experience. Uh, yeah, it's definitely. It's like I I've been to the Holocaust Museum in Washington D.C. and they have, that's a good one. They mm -hmm. have like the bunk beds from the concentration camps, and then there's other because the Holocaust is not just World War II. Like what happened in Rwanda and stuff, and you just the energy of it. And it's, it's the sadness and like, what brings so much hate that caused this, right? But yeah, so to give an idea, you know, the book kind of explains Preblinka. It was about 50 acres and it had anti-tank barriers and barbed wire with watchtowers in each corner. They used gas chambers and burial pits where the bodies were disposed of, originally by lime, then later by burning on large iron racks. Eventually, the Nazis became worried that the mass graves might be discovered, so they exhumed and burned them. And by the end of the war, it is calculated that 1,200,000 Jews died in Treblinka, including Lydia and Sophia, her sister. Um, she, oh, I'm sorry, Lydia was only 38 years old. So oh. About 10 years older. Now, here's something that is interesting. After the war, it was discovered that the Jewish cemetery had not been destroyed. So Ludwig Zemanoff's tomb still stood and it still stands today, my understanding. Clara Zemanoff's grave, which is nearby, they added this to her grave plaque that says, Lydia and Sophia murdered in the year 1942. Let the memory of them last forever. So it's because we don't have their actual graves, they put the, their names with their mother. Oh, that's kind of nice. Yeah. And there were memorial services, particularly in the, Baha uh, the United States and Canada, uh, organized by the Baha'is on October 25th, 1946. And I just, I thought her story was really inspirational of a woman who was so introverted, had a lot going internally and found strength and passion. And all who met her, or a lot of people who met her were still so drawn to her that she would come alive and teach so passionately that, that her students would learn Esperanto right away. Or that, you know, the man Arsenic <laughs> so mesmerized that this woman had so much faith that she refused my help to get her out of, you know, I could have hit her. And so her faith, her passion, and, and also she just really cared about keeping her father's legacy alive and and stuff and yeah so i really appreciate you guys share letting me share her story yeah thank you for bringing her to us she's a really inspirational awesome figure that i don't think i ever would have heard of otherwise yeah thank you um, i'm glad and i mean if there's i mean if you want i can um keep you posted because i have i have figured out seasons two three and four Again, they're mostly Baha'i women throughout history. Season two is going to be very short because I'm 20 by the time she dies. Her name is Zainab. And she was sort of like the Joan of Arc 
slash Mulan of Persia. <laughs> Ooh, we love and a good Mulan story. Was like, no, no one ever talks about Zainab. So I was like, all right, I'll make season two about her. And I, it, there's very limited resources on her. And I think it's going to be like two episodes now. <laughs> all right. I promised my mommy. And it, and it was interesting to hear what she inspired in others. And actually, when I let people know, particularly Baha'is, they're like, oh my God, I named my daughter Zainab and no one ever knows who that is. Kind of thing. <laughs> they were really like, the third season is on Hazel Scott. And the fourth season is on Carol Lombard. And she was like the queen of comedy and Hollywood. She was the highest paid actress in Hollywood in the 1920s and 30s. And they are often recognized by the men in their lives. She was married to Clark Gable. Oh, oh, that's actually, that's a name I know. So that was exciting. I don't <laughs> know a lot of 20s actors. Oh, here is one of the things I always like to say, Clark Gable only did played Rhett Butler to marry a Baha'i because it's true. Um, <laughs> he was married. He fell in love with Carol and they wanted to marry. But if he got a divorce, he'd have to pay so much alimony. And then this little old movie called Gone with the Wind was trying to be made. And I know it's controversial now, but at the time it was like, like an Avengers kind of like movie. And they were like, we want you Clark so bad. And they're like, he's like, no. And they're like, we'll pay you this much. She's like, no. And you're like, we'll pay you this much. And Carol's like, if you get paid that, you could actually get divorced and still have enough money and stuff. He's like, make it this. And they're like, we'll do it. And he's like, I'll take the role. And <laughs> he got his money and he's like, I hate this role. I hate this movie and stuff, but I love Carol and, and he got the divorce and he married Carol, but she also died tragically in a plane crash. And when he died, he made it in his will that he must be buried next to her. Aww, that's really Even though she's buried in Nevada, because as a Baha'i, you can't be buried more than two hours travel from where you've died. So she died in a plane crash in Nevada, even though she lived in Los Angeles. They had to respect that Richard. And so he died in Los Angeles. He's not a Baha'i, so he's like, ship me to Nevada. <laughs> Get me there in under two hours. Yeah. Honestly, uh, it's possible. Yeah. Las Vegas. Now it is. Maybe if you have Clark Gable money. Yeah. But I always liked that kind of thing. I was like, yeah, you can thank a Baha'i for for him being Rhett Butler. Um, yeah. That's like one of his most iconic roles. That's fascinating. Yeah. And I just love, like Cleopatra, you guys haven't done Cleopatra, have you? No, we did Hatshepsut last week. Yeah, there's another, I, I saw a, a clip of another pharaoh, female pharaoh. So, but I remember I read Cleopatra's thing and I was like, damn, I like her. <laughs> <laughs> kind of thing, so yeah. But yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. Of course. Me. Thanks for coming. This episode's going to be so long. It's going to be so long. Good <laughs> luck, Ellen. Sorry. Yeah, because I still have to I still have to explain about social isolation in Japan. <laughs> yeah, so how did that work? Because I remember listening to the Heedy, is, is it the Heedy Lamar? And then you talk about like your rights, your Miranda rights. Yeah, so what we do usually yeah. is we have like the story in which every one of us doesn't prepare like the story about a woman for that week whatever they like rabbit hole they went down that week on the internet they just explain oh okay for the Got last it. like 10 or 15 minutes of the episode so it's, it's a good time. extremely random topics yeah like last week ellen told me about cults i explained to her how astrology works a couple weeks ago it's a good time yeah okay 
I'll keep that in mind. All right. You guys want me back for Sophia Loren, my Khaleesi, my queen, my everything? <laughs> I'd be happy to, and I can find you guys some random facts and stuff. <laughs> anyway, have you wanted to learn about a random topic? Yes. Always, Ellen. That's really why I do this podcast with you. <laughs> Not about the feminist history. No. Um, all right. So, have you heard of Hikikomori? No, because I hadn't until yesterday. Anyway. I heard of it when you texted me that word this morning. <laughs> did you give yourself an overview like I told you to do? I did not. I read my Percy Jackson book instead. Yeah, that, that's on brand for you. Okay. So, in Japan, there is an increasing problem of hikikomori where people will just stay in their room and engage in extreme social isolationism and just not come out ever. And typically they're supported by their parents and it's not uniquely Japanese, but Japan is where the condition's been most seen. And it's basically modern day hermits. And unfortunately it seems there's around a million people uh, who live like this, mostly in Japan. So, so, like, if the term existed back then, would Emily Dickinson have had hikikomori? Maybe? I think she... Usually it's in, like, the absence of a specific mental health disorder. And I think Emily Dickinson had so many specific mental health disorders. <laughs> but, like, none of them were diagnosed, so... So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, something like that. Cool, cool. Just get in my frame of reference here. All right, so there's about five <laughs> criteria to figure out, to identify hikikomori. One, spending most of the day and pretty much every day confined to home. Two, a marked and persistent avoidance of social situations and social relationships. Three, social withdrawal symptoms causing significant function impairment. Four, this lasts a duration of at least six months. And five, no apparent physical or mental diagnosis to account for social withdrawal system symptoms. So I want to make a joke, but it's going to be bad and you might have to cut it out. Um, <laughs> oh, dear. So did everyone have this during the last year during COVID? Oh, that's actually OK. So my thoughts exactly. <laughs> so technically, no, because there was like a reason and people were like, but they've done, they've already been uh, studying the, the effect of COVID-19 on hikikomori. And they're like, yeah, it's going to become so much more common after this. Because everyone learned that you could stay home all the time. And like, yes, fine. They're already seeing a rise in the condition. <laughs> so it's already a problem. However... A what's supposedly a benefit is that be if it becomes more of a problem, people will supposedly become more empathetic and they'll be more like people will actually work harder to solve this. But we'll see. That's I mean, is it something that you solve? Well, these people are just staying at home all the time and it's usually not good for their own psyche. So the seclusion will actually make them more empathetic, though? No, no, no. The, this, the, if more people are doing this, then 
society in general will be like, yeah, we should probably do something. Oh, okay, okay. So society yeah, yeah. is empathetic towards what they're going through. The, they they want to stay secluded and then try and help them. Yeah. Okay, got it. That so, that's something. Anyway, the Japanese government is the one that's been doing like a lot of, done the most research on this. They say there's about 700,000 people uh, living as hikikomori, and the average age is around 31. However, because people don't want to, you know, uh, identify themselves, there could be more. And there's also the problem of a lot of parents, you know, they don't want to, like, come out about how their uh, about how their children are doing so they might be hiding it so probably more and there's also and been this is different than agoraphobia right yes cuz that's like an actual phobia of the outside world this is more of a social thing there've also been a significant number of cases in the united states the united kingdom Oman, Spain, Italy, India, Sweden, South Korea, and France. So, you know, it's spreading. Yeah, that's all over. Yeah. You get, like most of the continents right there. Yes, I Depending do. What, where you classify the Middle East. Yep. Do you think that it's also based on, like, a lot of those countries, not all of them, are quite more developed and very business involved, international business. So it's like a lot of work focus that they need. Yes, there's a few different ideas on causes. There's no known cause, but you know, there's a couple different correlating factors. Okay. So some of it is technology has definitely played a role because it's easier than ever to isolate yourself and use the internet or social media or video games as like your window into the world, which this can lead to like you know, addiction to the internet or gaming, but essentially it'll create just the isolation that we see in Hikikomori. And a lot of, there's also cultural aspects. So with Japan especially, they have this incredibly, it's a very conformist culture and very work-oriented, uh, lots of pressure to succeed, so a lot of cases and what will happen, a lot of uh, cases that have come out where people will undergo some kind of significant failure, like failing the entrance exam to, an ex uh, to university or after graduating, struggling to find a job. And it creates almost this pressure cooker environment where everyone is like, why, uh, why aren't you succeeding? Why aren't you doing better? And then just, they'll struggle so, they'll just, to get away from that, they'll retreat slowly and gradually to the point where they're just at home in their room all the time. So that's not great. <laughs> Let's see, what else do we got? It's contributed to what's known as the lost generation of Japan. Oh, that's a fun name for it. Yeah, they did that on purpose. I'm sure. <laughs> and a few of the impacts of this are, one, it's a financial burden. So that's, yeah, that's a problem. And also, there's 
two names for what are they gonna do when their parents can't support them now to be fair there are plenty of people who live like this who like do have methods of earning money and supporting themselves but there's others who do not so that'll that's called either the 80 50 problem or the 2030 problem and those refer to either the hikikomori children will be in their 50s or around then and they'll still be leaning on their parents who are in their 80s which doesn't really work yeah no that's unsustainable yeah and the 2030 comes from this will be a problem in, in 10 years yeah <laughs> <laughs> so so is this like the same idea as how in japan there's like those ramen places where you go and you like sit by yourself and it's like a thing to, and like you don't talk to anyone you order on like a screen i think so you can see how a culture like that could lead to yeah this so the there's a it's very difficult to treat these people partly because it's hard to get them to treatment. So there's that. But also because of such the, the social stigma where no one wants to, where even the parents don't want to get help because they don't want their family to be looked down upon or shamed. So is there a lot of like stigma against having like a hikikonormate? I can't say anything. Uh, is there a lot of stigma against having a kid like this in Japan? Yeah, because that's like, you know, seen as essentially a failure of parenting. But also it's just with the general stigma of mental health, where we see plenty of that out there. Fair. Interesting. So yeah. Weird no. problem. It, yeah, it's interesting. So... Is this basically like a hyper version of an introvert? It depends on how we're defining introvert. Fair enough. The literal definition of introverts mainly just like you get energy from resting without people yeah. as, as opposed to extroverts who get energy from being with people, but that doesn't have any bearing on how social you actually are. Okay. Um, yeah. Or like how, or like shyness or whatever. Okay, so like it's not that they're needing to unwind and regroup by themselves. It's a yeah, it's a very deliberate, self-imposed isolation and avoidance of people. All right. And they're worried that the problem could be getting worse as we see a rise in loneliness of young people. And and I'm sure it's getting worse as like being a young person is getting harder. Like there's less good jobs and more debt and all those like awful things that people are age are dealing with exactly like, going into a hole in your basement sounds kind of nice sometimes yeah and of course japan is also struggling with its birth rate oh uh, yeah so is all the other developed countries which i've been enjoying this drama immensely but <laughs> <laughs> essentially women aren't having enough kids because, you know, the world. Kids are expensive. Yes, that's one of the many, many reasons. And also, like, they really hurt your career because we live in a patriarchal society. Exactly. There's, it, it's a tough world out there. My sister is giving birth in September and, like, 
maternity leave policies and disability leave and all those kinds of things are so confusing. It sounds awful. <laughs> but yeah, and two weeks. Oh my god, cry. two weeks? Yeah. Complaining. I've heard it's mostly three months. I'm like, three months ain't gonna solve crap. No, my sister's company only gives like a two weeks, but the state of California requires three months, and so like between the state of California and her job, she can get like three months, but that's still like not enough when you're no, really pushing a child out. Yeah, what? Physical, you know, like yeah, recuperation. Then you got like this little human being who needs constant attention. Yeah, and childcare is expensive. And yeah. a lot of times it's more cost effective for a parent to stay home than it is to actually like get full-time childcare. Well, yeah. that is like the the best solution essentially to this birth rate problem is free childcare. That but no one's going to do that. Or is it yeah. the or is this because it's different in Japan but um uh, birth control. What do you mean? What's the debate about this birth problem? There's not enough kids. Yeah, well, yeah, there's, there's not. not yeah, oh, that's the problem. That was the problem. Yeah, okay. so, and then Japan also has, on top of that, they've also have people who won't talk to others. So, hard to make more kids if you live like that. You have 700,000 people who, like, won't leave their home or talk to anyone. Like, they're not making any babies anytime <laughs> No. <laughs> exactly. So, that's just another problem for the Japanese government. I heard they have like a, they now have like a ministry of loneliness because this, not this specific uh, hikikomori problem, but in general, it's been such an issue. I have a friend who went, well, in graduate school, she, we knew each other in graduate school, but when we were in college, separate colleges, she said she studied abroad in Japan and she found out that it's, like a brothel but it isn't that people will pay you just to cuddle with them because oh, they heard of that don't have any physical contact it's all business all the time and so they just need someone to like hold them and caress them and just let them unwind and she was like do you know how tempted i was <laughs> she's like that would pay for my college, oh well, and all I gotta do is hold this guy, like this 50 year old man, oh. they're there. And I was like, damn woman, I would do it. <laughs> Let's go to Japan. Let's pay yeah, I like cuddling. But it was, and she's like, it is a severe thing. And um, just this past weekend, I was, we had a nice little gathering at a friend's house and it was all these international people some from Bangladesh and India and one was from Japan, a couple from China and all that stuff. And I was talking because they were talking about the visas and stuff and the like how hard it is at work. And I said, like, may I ask, why do you guys want to stay in the United States? <laughs> I mean, fair. Having lived here. Having lived here, coming from here. And I actually remember talking to this to my friend who's a human rights immigration lawyer. And it was it was very fascinating. I was like, we still have gangs and stuff, and all. And it was very fascinating how she she would go to she speaks Spanish, so she would go to the Texas Mexico border when it was the height of separating the children from the parents and stuff, so she can translate and be like, 
The kid oh has my God, that must have been awful. Yeah, yeah. that's still happening, by the way. Still happening. It's gotten slightly from her experience. She's like a little less chaotic, but it's still happening. And it's terrible. It's not a good protocol at all. But yeah, I was like, why do they keep coming to the United States? In that instance, she's like, okay, so when you call 911, you still have a chance that they will come and help you. Most of the time, the people who are doing the attacks are 911 in a lot of these countries oh. under the pocket of the cartel or something like that. And I went, okay, fair enough. Like, I don't understand. A lot of people are like, and then when you're in the middle of all of this, like one of her clients was a 14 year old girl who was sold to this drug cartel. And I think oh. then she ran away and uh, she came basically illegally to the United States and went through that. And she was, her law firm was representing her and, and it was a whole thing. She's like, but if she goes back, not only, I mean, best case scenario is they kill her. Worst case, she goes back to her husband, I'm using oh. air, and he'll do whatever he wants to her, sell her, rape her, gang rape her, whatever. Oh, that's um, awful. So, so I was saying like, still United States, now going back to the Japanese woman and, <laughs> and stuff, I was like, so Japan quite established, quite, um, you know, your workforce, uh, your companies are just as well done as the United States and stuff like, why do you want to stay in the United States? I'm just curious. She's like, because very, very, and she is in IT. And she said in, in the United States, there's at least a work-life balance. There is no work-life balance in Japan. Mm -hmm. Like I worked till 7 p.m. tonight, but I still was able to come to this gathering. And it's the first gathering since, you know, before lockdown, um, since we're all vaccinated and things like that, where we're like, it was all in the same building. So she's like, but I still had time and energy to come and speak with you guys. And I don't have to worry about my boss calling me, even though it's 1030 at night. In Japan, it's very, very different. And, and so that was a good insight to understand why people want to go in other places or like how much money you make in the United States and how much it costs to live in other countries is always different, right? Like if you can make the money, well, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> uh, a lot of the people in India, they're like, for the same amount of job, for the same kind of job, I'd make a lot less in India than I would here. Mm -hmm. And sure, life is a little bit more expensive here, but I can still save up money more than I could in India kind of thing. Yeah, I was uh, reading a little bit more about like the Japanese work culture when I fell down this rabbit hole and <laughs> there's <laughs> there's a new phenomenon actually where there's a bunch of uh, young people who will just refuse promotions because mm -hmm. they're like, listen, I don't want the responsibility and extra hours and lack of free time that'll come with it. So... So Ellen, what did you learn today? <laughs> what did we learn today? <laughs> so yes, we have been recording for like an hour and 40 minutes now. God, what did you learn so today? Well. We, this might be a two-parter episode. I don't know how we'll do that. We'll figure it out. Anyway. I trust you in your editing skills. Oh, great. I learned all about Lydia, who has a last name. Zenimov. Zenimov. Yeah. <laughs> 
I learned that she was an incredibly brave, intelligent woman. She went all around the world and taught Esperanto. And even when, when given the chance to escape Nazi Germany, decided to stay there, which is crazy. Sam, what did you learn about Lydia? I learned a lot today, so particularly be because I did not prepare anything for this episode for the first <laughs> time, which I really enjoyed. And I appreciated because, like, I went on a little trip and I got back yesterday, so not having to actually prepare for this episode was really nice for me. But I learned about Lim Lydia Zeminoff and about just... Sorry, can you pronounce the name of the language I'm looking for me? Esperanto. Uh, and I learned about Esperanto and its origins, which was very interesting because I actually didn't know anything about that. And I think we can do the Tower of Babel again and piss off God. Always a good time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I also but learned I what the Tower of Babel is actually, what the purpose of the tower was. Yeah, I yeah. That, so because the humans were communicating too well and he's like, you're not listening to me. So then he made different languages so that they would only go to him. That's how I understood it. Yeah, that's how I understood it too. Pretty much they were able to create this giant tower that like almost reached God and he was like unhappy that they were able to communicate well enough to pull that off. So he decided they should no longer be able to communicate at all. Yeah. I thought the lesson was that God could, uh, was that humans are powerful enough that God can be afraid of us. I have an interesting household. Yeah, you really do. <laughs> um, One way of looking at it. <laughs> Ellen's parents are interesting. They would tell her that. <laughs> All right. What did you learn, Tara? Um, I learned that there is this like phenomenon going on of that's been going. How long has the what is this thing called in Japan? Uh, hikikomori and. I think it was like first identified late 80s. Okay, yeah, and I think that tracks with like the use of technology, the growing use of technology. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think because we can be uh, reached almost at 24 seven, it's, it's tiring. So, and then there's these people who just really need to have that total isolation. I didn't know that, you know, I'm more of an extrovert, um, but, that's why I asked, like, is it like being an introvert <laughs> kind of thing? Um, and it sort of, yeah, I learned more about that. And that there is, I, I have heard that there is this ministry of something. In, loneliness. In loneliness or something. Like, with this yeah, ministry yeah. of loneliness. I think a lot more countries are going to pick up with ministry of loneliness when lockdown is no longer a thing and hopefully... But it's probably not for a few more years. We gotta, oh. Things have to get worse first. That sounds like a very not American thing. I feel like we won't have that here. Helping others? Yeah. yeah. Too developed. <laughs> We're two first world problems. I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah. All right. Yeah. Thank right? you so much for joining us. Do you want to do your plugs first? Mine? Uh, please check me out at Who Was She podcast on Instagram and Facebook and Pinterest. Um, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Tara underscore Jabari. And yeah, thank you. I'm working on season two and three as we, not as we speak, because I'm talking to you. <laughs> During the time I'm working on it and I'm very excited, but honestly, I'm legit. Like if you're going to do about Sophia or Elizabeth. We'll let you know. Yeah. 
I cannot stress enough how much I love it. <laughs> And I then them for yeah. us, if you can find us, the Chaos Cast at pretty much anywhere you find podcasts. Our Instagram is at Chaos Podcast. You can send us an email if you have episode ideas or just want to tell us your thoughts at chaospodcast21 at gmail.com. And we now have a Twitter, which I'm still excited Ooh. about and scared of. It's at underscore Chaos Podcast. So check us out. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed the chaos. Safe travels. Bye bye.